0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us and we're going to begin. Father, thank you for um... Lord, just another opportunity to gather together as a body of believers on a rainy, cooler morning, Father, where we've lost an hour of sleep. We still have so much to be thankful for. Father, just remind us this morning of your goodness. Remind us of your glory, Father, of all the ways in which you have worked and all the ways in which you will work in our lives and in the lives of so many others. Father, I pray that as we open the truth of your word now. You would just reveal to us your will, Father, reveal to us how we should live our lives. Convict us, Lord, in areas that need changing and correction, Father, and and just help us just to sense your glory and your power. Father, I pray that you would just uh, open our eyes to the truth. May we be challenged and changed, Father, and, and may we be conformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. As you're finding Acts chapter 13, is Mr. Philip in here or is he still in the back? Okay, that's all right. If you were at Flag Weekend, stand. Parents, kids, workers, Flag Weekend. Let's just, I'll tell you what it's about in a second, but let's congratulate these kids on an incredible weekend because it was pretty incredible. So, Flag Weekend is 4th and 5th graders only. They show up on Friday night. We used to call it a lock-in. That's old school, right? I asked them how the lock-in was. My kids were like, huh? Oh, <laughs> uh, Flag Weekend, they come spend the night just filled with fun and games and a lot of Bible study, and then they leave Saturday morning. I think Mr. Phillips told me there were 40-plus kids. Angela, do you remember? Over 40 kids, just fourth and fifth graders, and then a handful of workers uh, that gave their Friday night, Saturday morning to uh, minister to these kids. Just an incredible weekend, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of opportunity to to just grow in their walk. And man, every chance we get to teach these kids, we ought to do it, right? I mean, every chance we get. And this is not a sermon about uh, parenting or discipleship at home, but moms and dads, it's your responsibility. Like we as a church want to partner with you, and we want to help you any way we can, and we'll give you materials and guidance and, and whatever we can do to help you. But ultimately, when you uh, get there to heaven one day, the Lord's not going to say, what did a little Johnny Sunday school teacher do? The Lord's going to say, what would you do, Dad? Right? What'd you do, Mom? Our call and we are raising the next generation to seek the Lord and trust the Lord and Flag Weekend is just one of the ways we partner and help teach these kids. And so, what a, what a neat weekend, great opportunity for those kids. Okay, we're back this morning in our sermon series through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, a series that we've entitled From Ordinary to Extraordinary. And I say that every week because I want you to understand God's doing extraordinary things in the book of Acts. God's doing extraordinary things through the people of Acts. God is using just kind of ordinary citizens, the the apostles, the early church, uh, Peter and and Paul we'll see this morning, and and Barnabas. And we see all sorts of examples all through the book of Acts of God taking just ordinary people, doing extraordinary things through them. Now it's interesting to me as we study through the book of Acts, and this is going to come up again this morning, how many times and how often the Holy Spirit is at work. Uh, If you were to flip back, and you don't have to, but like when I flip back to the beginning of Acts in my Bible, there's a title, and and, uh, just so you'll know, sometimes these titles have been added to, right? We, We would say that, uh, in some of the manuscripts, there were titles, but we wouldn't say the titles are ordained of the Lord. So we can discuss a little bit the titles, right? We don't, we don't dispute the words in the text because those are the words of God, but sometimes the titles are just added later to help us understand. And the title added to this book in my Bible is the Acts of the Apostles, which I would agree with, but I've said this really throughout the book, and it's going to show itself again this morning. It really ought to be the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles because it's, it's the power of the Spirit that drives the first century church it's a power of the spirit that leads these early century believers to to go from an ordinary group of people hiding in an upper room fearing for their lives to an extraordinary group of people with Peter as their leader who just literally walks out of prison because the Lord breaks the chains that are shackled to him in that cell extraordinary things to the power of the Spirit. And so we see these stories and we see these accounts and we see all that the Lord did through these people and it's easy for us to kind of set that aside and say that was 2,000 years ago, but the question we ask this morning as, as we see the power of the Spirit is, what does the Spirit want to do through me? Because we need to be reminded that the same Holy Spirit that saved Saul, that blinded him and allowed him to, to understand salvation, the same Spirit that broke Peter out of prison, uh, the same Spirit that, that gave Stephen the ability to be stoned and still glorify the Lord, the same Spirit that drove the growth of the early church is the same Spirit we have today, no different. It's the same exact Spirit uh, an analogy that that, uh, that we might understand, men. Sometimes sometimes we take the Spirit and kind of set the Spirit aside. I think Baptists, unfortunately, are maybe more guilty of that than others. We, we get the Father, Son, but the Spirit we set aside. And we've talked a lot about that. And we, don't, we don't understand and we don't often tap into the power of the Spirit. An analogy we might understand, men, is imagine you get a Lamborghini for your birthday, right? Wouldn't that be pretty sweet? I know you're all hopeful for that. You're like, you know, I was kind of thinking... <laughs> Imagine you get a Lamborghini for your birthday, right? Ladies, you're probably not going to understand this analogy. okay, your husband will. A Lamborghini is a, a pretty sweet car with an awful lot of power. Imagine if my beautiful, loving wife gave me a Lamborghini for my birthday, right? And I got in that thing, and I drove it all over town. I wanted everybody to see it. But when I drove it, I drove it at 10 miles an hour everywhere I went. Never over 10 miles. 11 miles an hour was too high for me. I'm driving 10 miles an hour. That's absurd, right? We laugh at that. What? I mean, you've got a car that'll go 200 miles an hour. I would never go 200, of course, honey. But <laughs> I would like to see how fast it'd go. I'd like to get it up to speed. You know, I wouldn't drive it 10 miles an hour. We've got this incredible car. Why wouldn't we use the power given to us? We do that with a Spirit. We've got this unlimited supply of power to accomplish incredible, extraordinary things for the kingdom in the world, and we drive it at 10 miles an hour. And so we're going to see again this morning, and I really hope be challenged by the the truth of God's Word, especially as it relates to the Spirit. And it's neat to me because these chapters, kind of in the middle portion of Acts, they're they're all kind of new twists and new turns, right? A few weeks ago we saw the, the, the vision that Peter had that the sheep descended from heaven, and the Lord reveals to Peter that it's not just about the Jews, it's also about the Gentiles, so kind of a complete change in the mindset. We saw the church at Antioch come from that. We've seen change from reaching the people just in Jerusalem to moving out to Judea, Samaria. We've kind of seen this growth based on Acts 1-8. And we're going to see the, the same thing today. We're going to see a change moving this morning from the regional approach, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Because in Acts chapter 13, we're going to begin now Paul's first missionary journey. Now I'll remind you, and I think it's important to remember kind of the foundation all this is built on, Acts 1-8. We studied this many, many weeks ago. Christ says to His followers, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? We've already started with Jerusalem. We've moved to Judea, Samaria. Acts chapter 13 is going to be the beginning process of moving out to the ends of the earth through Paul's first missionary journey. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 13. We have it on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible as well if you'd like. We're just going to spend uh, uh, some time this morning on three verses because there's so much in these first three verses that I wanted to kind of take the bulk of our time to think through and make sure we understand this. So Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch. Remember, we talked about Antioch a few uh, weeks ago, the first Gentile church. God did great things through the church at Antioch. So at the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas... Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there's a list of some of the leaders in the church there. Verse 2, foundational this morning for our understanding. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now remember, our goal anytime we study the truth of God's Word is to take the truth out, to understand the truth found in this text. And so we're going to walk through these verses together, really verses 2 and 3, and see what truth we can pull, what truth we can understand. Remember, this is important. Applying what happened in the first century with the Spirit to us today because it's the same Spirit. So all the things the Spirit did in the first century, the Spirit can still do today. So truth number one, we see it right there in verse 2. When we seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaks. When we seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaks. Now pull verse 2 back up again for me, please, because I want you to see this in this text. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so there's this whole sense of devotion we're going to get to here in just a second. While they're doing these things, the Holy Spirit, what? Said. Right now, I want to be careful. We're not necessarily talking about an audible voice here, although I think that's certainly possible. We're talking about the guidance of the Spirit. The Spirit is going to speak and lead these people to do some pretty incredible things. But here's what I want you to notice first. Before we get to what the Spirit is going to lead them to do, I want you to notice what's happening in this church. Because we we can't assume that the Spirit is going to work when we ignore the Spirit and ignore the teachings of the Lord and don't do the things Christ has called us to do. Instead, we see a church that is devoted to the things of the Lord. Right, we see a church that is worshiping and fasting. And so it's interesting because there are kind of two different ideas here. Right? Worshiping is more of a corporate idea. We'll get there in a second. Fasting is very personal, isn't it? Now, if you don't understand fasting, if, if you're not a, a, a Christian yet or you don't fully understand, you're still growing in your faith, fasting is very simply where we say, listen, I'm not going to eat I'm not going to partake or eat or drink for a certain period of time. In that time, I'm going to focus on the things of the Lord. So it's kind of like saying, instead of relying on food for my strength and comfort, I'm going to instead rely on the Lord during this time for my strength and comfort. Now, some people fast for a meal. Some people fast for multiple meals. Some people fast for a full day or multiple days. And and I've known people that have fasted for, for multiple days, even up to a week or two. Now, fasting is all through Scripture. And this isn't a sermon on fasting. But part of what we ought to be doing as believers is fasting. Now, it's not easy, by the way. Like, I like to eat. I don't know about you, but I enjoy eating. And, and man, I'm telling you when, you, when you separate yourself from food for a period of time and you miss that first meal and you're really hungry, you begin to understand very quickly how much you rely on food in your life. I know that sounds silly, like it's kind of a no-brainer. But don't eat for a day. And you begin to get shaky and weak. And it just always reminds me, man, I'm really relying on the things of this world for my strength and my comfort. Because oftentimes we eat for comfort. I need to rely on the things of the Lord for those. So fasting is just a great exercise. It's a very personal thing that they would do to to draw closer to Christ, to deepen their walk. It's something we ought to be doing. But the other thing they're doing is they're worshiping, right? That's a corporate idea. They're coming together like we do every Sunday as a body of Christ, singing praises, studying the things of the Lord, trusting Him. Here's what I want you to understand about worshiping. Here's what younger generations would sometimes say. I've had these conversations. You probably have too. They'll say something like this. You know, I can worship the Lord anywhere. That is true. They'll say, I can can walk out in the woods and, and worship the Lord. That's right. I can sit by a beautiful lake, I can go to a cabin, I can worship the Lord anywhere. That is absolutely true. I would agree with that. But then the next thing they usually say I don't agree with, I don't think it's biblical, they'll say, you know what, I can worship the Lord anywhere, I don't really need to be in a church to worship the Lord. Now, I would agree you can worship the Lord anywhere, but I would disagree you don't need to be part of a body of Christ, because Scripture all throughout says things like don't forsake the assembling together of believers, right? We need to be worshiping together. It's a corporate act. Why? Because it puts us in a right frame of mind as a body of Christ to serve the Lord as a body of Christ. That's what we're called to do. And so we come together and, and we pray and we sing, and we open God's Word. All that is part of worship. All that's part of what this church is doing here, right? They're praying, they're singing. That's all part of worship. They're fasting together. They're listening to the apostles' teaching. All of these things are designed to grow in their walk. One writer said it like this. He said the environment was right for God to work. He said they had, I love this little phrase, an expectant devotion. Devotion. So so they're devoting themselves to the Lord by worshiping and fasting. And when they do that, they're expecting God to do something pretty incredible. The conditions were right for God to work. If you were to stand at my my sink, and by the way, if you're a guest this morning and want to join us for lunch at my house today, you're welcome. You don't have to sign up. Come see me right after. We do a luncheon every few months for our guests. We've got a lot of people coming today we got plenty of food and we want you to be part of it. But if you're at my house or you've been in my house and you stand at my, my kitchen sink, currently on our little windowsill is a little clay pot with some dirt in it. And one of my daughters planted that uh, a few months ago. And she planted it and she set it up on the windowsill. And so for several weeks I would just see this little flower pot filled with dirt and there was nothing going on. And I started noticing that I don't think anybody was watering it. It was just kind of dry. And so I, being the master gardener that I am, I started putting water in it. I mean, it's pretty amazing, right? I just take the little flower pot and I just put a few drops, nothing major. You don't want to soak it. And I put a few drops till it was just a little bit of water and I put it back. And I did that for, for uh, probably a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden, a little sprout popped up. Just a little bitty sprout. And I think other people kind of started noticing. I'm not sure who else has been part of the process. You know, we're all down there at different times. And, but other people start watering. So now we've got this little plant growing and nobody really knows what it is. It's probably a weed. We're probably just growing a weed. <laughs> I'm hoping it's going to be something beautiful. We don't know yet. But, but it's, it's a real simple process. All we did in those moments were make the conditions right. See, sunlight on the windowsill, the dirt nutrients in the soil, and water. That was the last ingredient we had not yet added. When we added the water, the conditions were right. We don't have anything to do with that sprout growing. I can't make it grow. I can't produce anything. I can't make it turn into a certain kind of flower or fruit or whatever. I can't do any of that. All I can do is make the conditions right. And when I create the right conditions, when I make the conditions right, growth occurs. It's the same thing here. Right? These people couldn't force the Spirit to do anything, couldn't force the Lord to do anything, couldn't make anything happen. All they did was they worshipped, they fasted, they made sure the conditions were right, and when the conditions were right, the Lord spoke to them. Right? When they were worshipping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. It's interesting how they prepared their hearts, how they prepared the, kind of the soil around themselves, and in that process when the conditions were right, God did amazing things. You know, I've said this a bunch, but I enjoy history. I like study and reading history. And some of you guys will remember the story of the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, if you go read a history book, uh, the Great Awakening took place between 1740, 1742. Pre-Declaration of Independence, right? If you're kind of thinking time frame, the early American colonies. But if you really studied, it started in probably the 1730s, lasted to the 50s or 60s. It was a period of several decades of incredible growth and and thousands, tens of thousands of people came to know Christ. And you hear the Great Awakening, you think God was doing some pretty incredible things. But the interesting thing is if you kind of trace back, the beginning of the Great Awakening started with Jonathan Edwards. Uh, He was in a small little church in Massachusetts in the early 1730s. And by his own account, this church wasn't doing anything kind of dead, not really growing, not really reaching people. And so he just started praying and, and preaching. If you've ever heard anything about Jonathan Edwards, uh, he was, he's known as, as America's greatest theologian. Some people would say he's the greatest theologian that ever lived. But he preached this right out of the Bible. Uh, he challenged his people. And he began to ask him to just pray. In his own words, he said the church started praying for God to move, calling out to God for the souls of their neighbors. What, what a radical idea. But like how many of us, currently are praying for the souls of our neighbors. (laughs) And so he begins to lead his people. They begin to pray. And then in 1734, according to his own words, six people were converted in his church. One of those in particular was very excited and started talking about the gospel and praying more and, and leading people. And over the next six months, I want you to listen to these numbers. This, this little town had 1,100 people in it. Over the next six months, 300 of, them were, 300 of those 1,100 were converted. They were saved. 25% of the population. Now just do the math and roughly, these are rough numbers, in Truth County, that, that's like 20,000 people coming to know Christ in the next six months. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if 20,000 people came to know Christ in the next six months here in Troop County? It was the beginning of the Great Awakening. Why did it happen? Because a small little group of people very simply devoted themselves to the things of the Lord. That's it. The, the Great Awakening, which is, by the way, written about in secular history books. You go read a secular textbook, it's going to talk about the Great Awakening. Tens of thousands of people in the colony saved. Why? Because a small group of people devoted themselves to the things of Christ. What if a large group of people devoted themselves to the things of Christ? Now we have, I don't know, six or seven hundred people on Sunday morning. What if 700 people from Rosemont devoted themselves to the things of Christ? What if we radically devoted our lives to worshiping and to fasting and to praying and to trusting the Lord? When, when we see these things in Scripture happen, when, when we create the right environment and the conditions and we trust the Lord and we ask Him to work, amazing things always happen. And so let's continue. Let's, let's see what happens in verse 2 of Acts 13. So, so, so verse 2, we have it on the screen. While they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, right, they're preparing their hearts, they're trusting the Lord, they're seeking Him, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Here's the second truth. When we seek the Lord, not only does he speak, but number two, when we seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit will call us to action. When we seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit will call us to action. Let me me just speak some truth into your life just for a second here. One of the scariest things you will ever do in your life as a believer is honestly and seriously and earnestly pray that the Lord will lead you to do whatever He wants you to do. Because if you're serious about that prayer, you better be prepared to do whatever He asks you to do. (laughs) I think a lot of believers pray that prayer with the understanding that they're going to do anything God calls them to do as long as it fits into their worldview and their time frame and their schedule, right? God, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as I can make it happen in the schedule of what I've already set out here. As long as it works in my life, Lord, I'll do it. Radically, I'll do whatever. But when you honestly say, to the Lord, listen, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to uh, do whatever you call me to do. There, there are no limits. It's kind of like a blank check. Lord, you fill it out. I'm willing to do that. When you make that statement and you pray that to the Lord and you're honest about that, that can be a very scary thing because you don't really know what the Lord's going to call you to do. Because one thing we see throughout Scripture is that God is a God of action. Right? I've said this before, but Christianity is not really passive. Now, I want to make sure I make a distinction here, right? We're saved through grace. We get that. We can't work our way to salvation. I've said that a hundred times. I hope you understand that by now. You can't do anything to work your way to salvation. So that's an act of grace by the Lord through our faith. But once you're a believer, once you've settled that, you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Scripture is very clear that Christianity is about action. God wants you to do things. Now what those things are between you and the Lord, I I would never pretend to try to tell you God's calling in your life, but what we see over and over in Scripture is when people seek the Lord and trust Him and follow Him, He calls them to do things. (laughs) Pull up verse 2 again. Just look at the word He uses right here. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the... What's the word? Work. Let's do work, man, right? Not for the rest, although rest is part of Scripture. I don't disagree with that. There's a time for rest. But God says, listen, I've got a very specific work for them. It's something I've called them to do. It's for these two guys specifically... And I called them because they were devoted to me. They were worshiping me. They were fasting. They were trusting me. And in those moments, I called them. I set them apart to do some very specific things for me. So the question we ought to be asking ourselves and the question we ought to be praying through based on this truth and so many others like it in the New Testament and really throughout the Old Testament as well is what work does the Lord have for me? Like what's He calling me to do? Now, I'm going to step on your toes just for a second so go ahead and be prepared for this. Okay? You may say, well, the Lord's never called me to do anything. Maybe you've never devoted yourself to the Lord. If you want to know why the Lord's not calling you to action, it starts by looking in the mirror. It starts by kind of finding this place in your heart where you say, Lord, I'm just willing to serve you. I want to devote myself to you. I want want to pray more. I want to study more. I want want to read more. I want to understand who you are in my life. I, I want to make this book foundational for me in the decisions I make. I promise you, if you'll do those things, if you t- take three months, in every day or most days, pray, study God's word, ask God to guide you. I promise you, in three months, your life will be radically different. Why? Because that's the promise of Scripture. But God says, listen, I've got work for these guys to do. I want to, I want to do something through these guys. I want to accomplish great things through them. And I want to lead you through the process, the Holy Spirit says. Now listen, I'm going to give you, because some people say, what, what does that really mean? Like, what, what does the Spirit do? It's hard for me to understand. It's hard for me to get that. I think we've kind of taken this idea in, in the old Baptist terms. We called it the Holy Ghost, right? You ever been to a Holy Ghost revival? You ever had one of those? Not just Baptists, there are others as well. And I understand the idea, but the phrase sometimes scares us and we misunderstand. Like ghost, or we think Casper in the little white sheet, right? And that's not at all we're talking about here, right? We're talking about the Spirit of the Lord. So I'm going to give you five, because I just always want to kind of rein this back in Biblical. What does the Bible teach us? Five things that the the Scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit will do in our lives, right? So you're talking about the, the Spirit guiding you, setting you apart... Calling you for specific work. Here are five things biblically the Spirit does. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list, there are many others. These are five things that are, I think, pretty critical to what the Spirit does. Here's the first one we have on the screen. The first one you need to understand is the Spirit lives within you. Right? So, so we, we shouldn't have this concern that uh, the Spirit that led. Paul and Barnabas into Asia Minor for the first missionary journey is a different spirit than we have. Exactly the same spirit, no different. Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? And as a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the spirit lives within you. That means 24 7, 365, you have access to this power. You understand that? It's like you're driving the Lamborghini and you got your foot on the gas, you're ready. All you got to do is access the power. Why? Because the Spirit lives within us. John 14, 17. It says, The world cannot accept Him, speaking of the Holy Spirit, because it neither sees Him, right? We understand that. Or knows Him. But you, talking about believers, know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. See that? Scripture says, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the world's not going to understand. The world's not going to know. But as a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives with you and will be in you. We have access to the Spirit because He lives within us. Here's the second thing. The Spirit testifies with our spirit. The Spirit testifies with our spirit. Romans 8.16 8, says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Right? The, the more you devote yourself to the things of the Lord... The more you trust Him, the more you grow in your walk, you begin to understand that His Spirit testifies with your spirit, right? You just kind of understand. You ever, you ever met somebody and you just didn't have a good feeling about them? You ever had that, that moment? Or the opposite, you just met somebody and you just kind of, you're speaking their language. And I would say to you, a lot of that's the Spirit working. That's the Spirit leading us. That's the Spirit testifying and, and guiding us. Here's the third thing the Spirit teaches us. John 14, 26, Christ says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. You know, one of the things you ought to do, uh, I, I just feel like there, there ought to be, uh, on a Sunday morning before you come to church, and I know this is radical for some people, I think there ought to be some sort of a preparation for you before you show up at worship. Now, I think one of the things you ought to be doing on Sunday morning is preparing your heart for worship. Because, you know, the, the world is a, a, a difficult... Uh, there are lots of things we struggle with. We get all that. And sometimes we bring that in with us. And if you're bringing it in with you to pray through and ask the Lord to use it, that's great. But if you're bringing it in as a burden and a worry and a concern, I think sometimes we miss the teaching of Scripture. Sometimes we miss what the Lord's doing. And so we, we ought to prepare our hearts. We, we ought to come to worship by saying, You know, Holy Spirit, as I study Acts 13 this week, teach me. That's what Scripture says He'll do. Teach me all things and remind me of everything that the Lord said to me. Like how many times on Sunday morning do we come, and I know if you've got kids, it's a, you know, it's a different sort of a deal getting to church on Sunday morning. But how neat would it be in the car between finding shoes and making sure shirts are ironed as you're driving to church, right? How cool would it be in the car to have a neat little conversation with your family? Hey guys, we're almost to church. Uh, would one of y'all lead us in prayer that the Spirit would teach us this morning and our hearts would be prepared to worship? Man, how cool would that be? Just getting our hearts ready, getting our, getting our thoughts and minds on the Spirit. The fourth thing, the Holy Spirit convicts us. John 16, 8 says, When He comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Right, a lot of times we call it kind of the, the, the still small voice, or some people say they're conscious, right? It's the idea that the Spirit is guiding us and convicting us and leading us and saying, you know what, this is not a good idea, don't do this. Or this is a good idea, this is, a, this is of the Lord. And then the fifth thing we see, and again, this is not an exhaustive list, but I think this is very important. The Spirit gives us peace. John fourteen, twenty-seven. Says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You ever the, the, the verse in Philippians four seven says uh basically the, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus? How many times have we experienced a moment of peace that we just couldn't quite understand? Uh, a, a, a spirit of, of hope, joy we couldn't quite understand. That's the Spirit leading us. That's the Spirit guiding us. That's the Spirit using us. So, so the Spirit in this case has spoken to these people. He's called them to action. And then let's finish up. Look at verse 3 again. I'm going to add verse 4 to We've got to finish up this morning. Acts 13 verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, so there it is again, right? They're just reminding us of the devotion of these people. After they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So just, I want to show you two things here. Uh, Verse 3 is is the sense of the people of the church. They fasted, they've prayed, they've laid their hands on them and sent them off. Then the very next verse, verse 4, says what? So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed on to Cyprus, right? So so there's there's this interesting combination of the church and the Spirit working together. And here's truth number three. When we seek the Lord, according to the words of Scripture there in verse 4, the Holy Spirit will send us. When we seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit will send us. And Again, there's this interesting combination of the church working, the Holy Spirit working, the people recognize the calling, they hear the calling, the Spirit sends these people out. And together, when these things come together, the people are seeking and trusting, the Holy Spirit is calling and sending. When that happens, great things take place. Now one of the interesting things we see in Scripture, I've talked about this before, you have kind of two options here. You can be a goer, or you can be a sender, but there's not really a third option. John Piper said it like this, there are three possibilities. He says you can be a goer, you can be a sender, or you can be disobedient. Now, sometimes we get to these passages of Scripture, and of course Paul was going out to the ends of the earth, and and our minds automatically go to like foreign mission trips. And I, I, I would just say to you, that may be the way the Lord is calling you, But but I want to be very clear. It it doesn't really matter where you're sent to as long as you understand that you're sent. You may not be called to go to Africa. Fine. You may be sent to the student that sits across from you at the lunch table. Student, that may be how you're sent. Business owner, you may be sent to an employee... Teacher, you may be sent to a student. Husband, you may be sent to your family. There's just so many different ways as we understand this idea of being sent. We understand that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of these people and sends them to do things, what those things are between you and the Lord. And we give you a lot of opportunities here, right? There are all sorts of local missions projects and Mission LaGrange and Laundromat and and kids clubs and warming center and and all the things. You know, we have all the, the, the safe family stuff now and the foster care, the orphan care. We have a food pantry here. We do all sorts of things on a regular basis to minister to the people of this town, this area, this region. But you've been called to be part of that. You've been sent out to do the work of the Lord. What's God sending you to do? How is the Holy Spirit using you? You say, well, you know, I'm not sure the Lord's calling me or sending me to do anything. Then back up, go to verse 3 again. Then you need to back up and examine how often you're fasting and praying and worshiping and trusting the Lord. Because your level of devotion, I'm just telling you, your level of devotion to the Lord and trust in the Lord as it grows, the voice of the Spirit working in your heart will get louder and louder and louder. And the Lord will do more and more and more things. I want to read you. We just had a team that came back from Nepal. Certainly there are mission trips around the world that you can be involved in as well. But I love this because this missionary, the guy that we worked with, the guy that we have worked with for several years now sent me an email. I just want to read you a portion of it. I think it's a, just a great testament of what the Lord's doing here in this church. He said, this team, he's talking about the team, they are proof that your strategy, he sent this to me talking about our church, they are proof that your strategy of sending repeat teams has created a culture that produces field-ready volunteers. They helped us to solidify entry into six districts by leading out in six training events, listen to this, with attendance of 275 believers and leaders. So a team of three from Rosemont went to the other side of the world and trained 275 people in the things of the gospel their modeling of the training was successful to the extent that on the last day local leaders were able to teach vision and entry and evangelism all on their own the team's willingness to push forward with a tough travel schedule enabled us to reach literally to the ends of the earth we visited a community that included some Mushara people I didn't know who the Mushara people are because I've never been to this part of the world so I looked up the Mushar people. They're an unreached people group. less Listen, listen to this, 0.02% believers. 0.02% of the Mushar people are believers. Our team got to go and share with those people. The local church there has led some of them to Christ. Please pray for this group to be reached. Thanks for giving away the keys to the kingdom by sending out your best. I love that because it's just evidence again that when a church seeks the Lord and trusts the Lord and follows the leadership. All three of these men, by the way, we just announced this trip about six weeks ago. They all came to me and said, the Lord's calling me to go. And they all had a very different story of how it happened. I promise you every one of them would have said to you, the Lord spoke to me and said I needed to go and they did. I just wonder, what's the Lord going to send us to do? Uh, What what extraordinary thing does the Lord want to do through you? As as we devote ourselves to Him, as we trust Him, as we hear from Him, as we we delve more into His Word, as He he sends us out to do work, what's He calling you to do? What, What would a group of six or 700 people devoted to Christ be able to do for this area, for this region? God wants to take ordinary people, very ordinary people, through the power of the Spirit do extraordinary things through them. What is Christ calling you to do? That's the question you have to answer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the truth of your Word. We thank you again for the, this is clear teaching on the, on the power of the Spirit, Lord. Just the Spirit calling these, these men out and, and sending them, Lord, and equipping them and, and just challenging them, Father. And we... We acknowledge right now that the same spirit that sent out Paul and Barnabas still lives within our hearts and our lives and our minds today, Father. We're still controlled by the same spirit. No different. And so I pray, Father, that we would just deepen our faith and our devotion to you. That as we do that, Father, you would speak to us. You would call us to action. You would send us out in the world to accomplish your purposes. Father, we want to do great things for the sake of your kingdom. We want want to... Kind of take an ordinary life, Lord, and do extraordinary things for you. Use us for the sake of your kingdom, for your honor, and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. Opportunity for you to pray. Speak to me. Respond however the Lord leads you to as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you.